This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the first of four voices found in Isaiah, the pre-Assyrian voice that condemned the greed and injustice of the people of Judah. That's right. Uh, this is uh, another podcast. I think our last one uh, that we had to redo coming to you from the future. If you hopefully listened to the last episode, um, you heard us talk about how we had a bad recording. And so three and a half years later, here we are to try to fix those bad recordings. We're going to try to reproduce the episode as close to the original as possible. But we are here from 2021 fixing our flubs. So there you go. There you go. Anything else we need to say, Brent? Uh, no, I just uh, thought maybe you want to talk about what we mean by the voices of Isaiah. And, and the episode title has the one before the Isaiah. And so maybe that's confusing. And so, <laughs> yeah. so what what's going on here? Absolutely. You said in your introduction there that we had the first of four voices of Isaiah. And there, there could even be more. But um, one of the things that I discovered um, after my Bible education um, was that in scholarship, and not that there's nobody that thinks differently, but by and large, the consensus in scholarship is that you have multiple pieces of Isaiah. You have multiple authors, multiple multiple what's usually called voices. In the one book of Isaiah, you have probably at least three um, uh, different sections of Isaiah. Many will say four. Some people will say even more. Like some people think the whole prophecy, the whole book, has been kind of rearranged and redacted with lots of different sources, lots of different voices coming together. Um, uh, there's lots of different ways to kind of like slice and dice the details. Um, but generally speaking, I'm going to take the theory that I think is probably most popular. Um, I, I remember uh, Walter Brueggemann mentions it as he goes through. I used to always teach Brett in the past. I always taught how many voices of Isaiah? Uh, four. I actually taught three. Oh, you taught three. I, ta- I taught three. I was aware that there was a popular opinion about four, but I taught three. And then as I went through Brueggemann's books um, and was studying some of his material, uh, he convinced me of four. And so uh, this is the first time I'm making a fourth Isaiah in this body of work. So, um, But really what you have is you have a Isaiah spans this huge amount of time. Like the part that we're going to look at today, what period of history are we in, Brent? Still in pre-Assyrian. We're still in pre-Assyrian. Uh, and yet later in the book, and and yet you get later in Isaiah, and and you're listening to Isaiah condemn all these different nations that appear very later in the story. Then you get later in Isaiah, somewhere around, say, you know, uh, Isaiah 37, 38, 39. And now all of a sudden you have like a, a, a historical record of Sennacherib which is much, much later in the story, like much later in the story. Um, and and so either <laughs> Isaiah is written much, because the actual Isaiah lives, uh, as it's told in the Bible, lives back with in the days of King Uzziah. Um, so we're talking uh, 8th century BC. So that's early. And yet a lot of the things that Isaiah talks about, and again, not in this super futuristic, like cryptic prophecy sense, like as a historian recording what happened to Sennacherib, that portion is in Isaiah too, which doesn't happen till much, much later in history. And so you're spanning such a, a gap that you have to have multiple authors. Either you have somebody at the very end, like if you wanted to maintain there's one author of Isaiah, logically speaking, that has to be at the end of the historical timeline, writing in Isaiah's name 
about all the things that have happened before him. Or you'd have to have this like belief that Isaiah was just absolutely speaking very directly and cleanly out of his mind in the in the first part as as a prophecy as a future telling prophet like it's just you you have multiple voices at play here and so what you what you probably likely have is you have at different points of history you potentially could have somebody that's coming after Isaiah maybe even maybe a, a student of Isaiah's maybe even a disciple of Isaiah's somebody who was maybe younger and listened to the prophecy of Isaiah and then years later, decades later, now that young student has grown up and is now a lot older, but they've taken everything they learned from Isaiah, and now they're they're continuing the work, they're continuing the prophecy. And then decades later, somebody that was listening to all the words of those authors picks up the mantle and carries the message of Isaiah further. And then, you know, a, a, a years later, another person picks up the mantle and carries it further. And so you have these other ghostwriters writing underneath Isaiah's name. And so we're going to talk about these four voices at their appropriate points in our walk through prophetic history. And so if you kind of want the breakdown, again, it's hotly debated. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I don't have the luxury of being able to look at the Hebrew and how it works and operates to have a real good sense of this. But generally speaking, First Isaiah is going to be the first 11 or 12 chapters. Chapter 12 is a great uh, example. When you look at chapter 12 of Isaiah, is chapter 12 the end of First Isaiah? Is chapter 12 the beginning of Second Isaiah? Is chapter 12 the work of a redactor to kind of create a segue in between the voices? There's a lot of ways you can answer this stuff. But somewhere between the Isaiah 1 through 12 is First Isaiah. Second Isaiah, somewhere between like 12 or 13 through 39. Chapters 13 through 39, give or take. Those are kind of squishy. And then and then third Isaiah is what we call the servant discourse. I really look forward to that episode. But the servant discourse is Isaiah uh, chapter 40 through, say, 54, 55. And then, again, you have the same thing. as 55, the end of third Isaiah. as 55, the beginning of fourth Isaiah. as 55, a redactor creating a segue. Who knows? Um and then fourth Isaiah being, you know, chapters 55, 56 through the end of the book, 66. Uh, so we're going to talk about those four different voices. So today we're going to focus on first Isaiah chapters, you know, first 11 or 12 chapters uh, of Isaiah. How do we, how do we do explain that? Brent, you got any follow-ups or questions or additions? Yeah, I was just thinking about like what, what it would look like for Isaiah to, to pass on his name and his legacy or whatever, like. You know, we have the example of like Elijah and Elisha, but I'm just wondering, like, what, what, what's the image? Like, how, how should we view this potential relationship? Like, we don't have any record of it at all. So, how, how can we like imagine this? Yeah, it's pretty speculative. Um, I'm just about ready to dive into, uh, in a much more direct and depth and deep sense, uh, the prophets by Abraham Joshua Heschel, um, and I'm interested to see if he. What he has to say about, I'm betting there's going to be some amazing material in there that I either don't remember or just need to go through more um, more astutely. But there's, we, we seem to have an understanding that prophets went through a kind of schooling. There was a kind of prophet school. We even read about it in the text with Isaiah, with, with Elijah. Um, you read about, and really, Elisha, actually, Elisha. Um, 
you read about him with a bunch of other prophets and all these other prophets are kind of together in a, in a community, in a school uh, where they're learning how to be a prophet. We don't know how it worked. I think there's a ton of speculation around that. I know traditionally the Jewish mind often sees Elijah and Elisha as the first disciple, like rabbi disciple relationship. Um, like you can say Moses and Joshua, but really practically speaking, the first rabbi disciple is Elijah and Elisha. The the that relationship is and so how much was prophet school, prophet schooling, how much did it follow kind of a disciple we we there's a ton of speculation. It's it's hard to know for sure. I look forward to maybe learning some more from Heschel and seeing what he's got uh in his book there. So those are my thoughts there. Coming from the uh future Marty and Brent perspective, maybe this is something we'll uh come back to and cover in session six when we're done with the whole narrative. We can once we figure out some more about this, we can come back and dive into it. Absolutely. I'm kind of prepping. That's one reason I'm getting into this book, because I'm hoping to do a an episode on that. So hopefully that's very true. All right. It'll be waiting for you in the future. Yes. Listeners, stick it out. We'll we'll come back and uh and continue this conversation in, you know, a few years worth of podcast time. Absolutely. But maybe maybe only a few weeks in your time. Who knows? Yeah. Some of you listen to this stuff in pretty fast, uh fast pace. Yeah. All right, so we, we, we get into this. We're going to look at first Isaiah, these first 11, 12 chapters. And again, one of the things we're doing as we journey through the prophets is we're wrestling with this tension between story A and story B. Am I hearing the agenda of idolatry and immorality, or am I hearing the agenda of injustice and empire and, and the need to resist empire? And first Isaiah is one of those voices where I think it just is like the clarity. Like for me, it is so crystal clear. And Isaiah will be full of, I think we've kind of already tipped our hand, Brent, if people were listening to the uh, introduction to our episode today. They may already know where we're headed, but Isaiah will definitely make mention of both both stories, both agendas. There'll be plenty of talk of idols in Isaiah. There'll be plenty of talk of justice. And yet one of them just seems to, for me, as I read Isaiah, one of these agendas seems to just thunder through, and it starts at the very, very beginning. So... Uh, Brent, how about you take us into the first uh, chapter here of Isaiah? The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured and your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. This is a pretty uh it's a pretty dark picture here Brent Billings. Like this is yeah, this isn't like happy this isn't happy news here. This is they're in pretty rough shape it sounds like by the by the by the words of Isaiah. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. All right, let's let's uh, keep listening and see what kind of what kind of people we dealing with here. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. 
Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. All right, so there's the uh, there's one of the condemnations. Like Isaiah says, you you rulers of my people are like the rulers of Sodom. You leaders are like the leaders of Gomorrah. Now, what was the uh, what was the issue? What was the sin of of the of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Brent? They didn't look after the alien, orphan, and widow. They weren't taking. And we looked at that all the way back in session one. They weren't hearing. God had to come hear the cry because they weren't taking care of. And we'll see that again in Ezekiel. But as Ezekiel says, they were they were haughty. They were overfed. They were arrogant. Um, they didn't take care of the poor and the needy, according to Ezekiel. So, so you rulers of Sodom, what is the condemnation here? Let's let's keep on listening here. There's some interesting observations we're going to make. Not not how you want to be addressed. No, by God, if you're the, that the story does not end well. Yeah, <laughs> the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Okay, now Brent. So this is this is here. Uh, who was? This isn't an idolatry issue, is it, Brent? Apparently not. But who? Like, what kind of sacrifices are are they are they offering here? They're they're offering what God wants, and He says, "I have more than enough." Yeah, and and they're coming to what kind of worship services? Like this this group of people has their worship correctly. They are following the rules, and yet God is so upset. Let's let's keep listening to the language He has here. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. All right, so this is very blatantly not story A. Like in chapter one of Isaiah, we are not hearing, there is no issue of idolatry. These people are coming, they're bringing Levitical offerings to a Levitical temple in a Levitical priesthood. They're they're observing Levitical worship gatherings and assemblies and festivals. They are bringing offerings. They are praying. They are doing all the religious things. And God is so upset. He's like, I can't stand this stuff. This is absolutely worthless. Makes me, I cannot, I just, God's. Uh, vitriolic language. I, I am so disgusted by your worship. Oh my goodness, what is it they're doing? Brent, tell us. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Okay, sounds like uh, which story we got there, Brent? Pretty straightforward. Story B. Story B. So we're not wrestling with idolatry. This is not an issue of at least at least a, a certain kind of immorality, an idolatrous immorality. This is a different kind of immorality. And this immorality is centered around people. It's centered around justice. What God finds so disgusting about their worship is that they're taking the time to worship with all this beautiful offerings and wonderful, but they don't love people. They don't take care of people. Their whole world is built on injustice. And God says, I, I cannot stand this. You have to learn how to do right. You have to learn how to take care of the alien and the orphan. And right there, right there in Isaiah, the alien and the orphan and the widow. Go ahead, Brent. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Yeah, just a a pretty scathing rebuke to open first Isaiah. Now, uh, we we don't want to run past like some of the mentions. I I don't want to be accused of like avoiding issues uh, of idolatry. We we see that in some of the verses to come, uh, like the very end of chapter one. Uh, You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be uh, disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty uh, man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together and no one to quench the fire. There there might be some some hints, maybe at some uh, idolatrous behavior in there. I'm going to just skip ahead to to chapter 3. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty... I was about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food, all supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, clever enchanter. I will make mere use of their official, of their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, you have a cloak, you be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day, he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They look on faces the look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like, who is this again, Brent? Like Sodom. Like Sodom. Again, this condemnation. They they do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. So, what their hands have done, this injustice that they have woe, they have judgment uh, coming upon them. Pretty, pretty, again, pretty scathing rebuke. And yet, Brent, every prophet, what do we have? Every prophet? A little bit of hope. A little bit of hope. How about you read us uh, most of chapter four? It's a short little chapter. There's not much hope. I won't, you know, not not at this point in Isaiah. There might be later in Isaiah. But right now in first Isaiah, not, not a ton of hope. It's a little, little, little bit of hope, a little bit of hope, just enough. But uh, read us most of chapter two, other or, than excuse the Psalms, me, chapter four. Yeah, other than the Psalms, I feel like this is maybe the shortest chapter in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty quick. I don't, I don't know, but it's, uh, yeah, six verses here. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the blood stains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. Uh, and I, I love that, not only because it's a little bit of hope mixed into First Isaiah, but because we see all these images and all these pictures that come back from session one, uh, the shelter and the shade from the heat of the day and the refuge from the storm. And, and so it calls you back to those desert 
those desert days because what they're, they're headed into a wilderness that's for sure i mean the cloud and the fire like the yeah the in, intimate presence of god that they got to know in the desert absolutely maybe even a reference to the blood path like you definitely have this callback because they've just been informed they're headed into the wilderness and yet god says ah, i've got some hope for you because i the things that were true about me in the desert are still true of me that's still what i'm doing in my story we're gonna have you know part of justice is gonna be you know, taking you back and putting things right. And so we're going to have to learn some lessons, but that's going to play a huge part throughout all the voices of Isaiah. The later voices of Isaiah, two, three, and four, um, second, third, and fourth Isaiah, they're going to keep calling back to some of these seeds that were planted in first Isaiah. So uh, that's that's excellent. But um, we're going we're gonna to close our time today in Isaiah 5. And uh, speaking of seeds being planted, Isaiah 5 uh, utilizes an image, and it's going to be the image of uh, 1st Isaiah for our review. So uh, in the spirit of a review, Brent, what was what was Amos's image? Amos was the plumb line. He was a prophet to which kingdom, by the way? To Israel. Northern kingdom, okay. Northern um, kingdom. And then uh, uh, what was the next prophet? Uh, then we had Hosea, also a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, and his image was the prostitute. Okay. And then last week we looked at, uh, who was that? Micah, with the image of a judge, as in uh, Mishpat, not, yeah, that that restorative justice. Yeah, that's right. So uh, judge would be the image for Micah. So the image for first Isaiah is going to be the image of vineyard. Vineyard. Or you could say garden. I'm I'm going to say vineyard for our notes, but... Uh, a garden, a terraced garden. In the Hebrew, the term is gan, gan, G-A-N, gan. A gan is a, a a terraced garden. And we have a presentation in your show notes. Uh, if you look at that, you can see a bunch of pictures. Now, uh, Brent, these, these pictures were taken back in 2008. Um, uh, I was not a photographer. I am not a photographer. But back then I had a, a, you said it's a third of a megapixel camera? Well, I I think the camera itself was a little bit higher resolution, but the pictures are a third of a megapixel. I'm assuming because you, you know, were on a long trip and you need to take a lot of photos. And so you chose the smaller file size. There you go. Well, you're you're all welcome for that. I definitely meant to bless you in this way. If you can even make out what you see in there. But there, man, I'm telling you, I do, I do love these photos. They work for me. Standing there in person. They have like this painterly feel to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great way of wording it. Um, it was stunning to just be there. And so when you, this is the idea of a gun. This is a terrace garden. Now this garden that uh, I'm taking photos here of here in this presentation, um, I was told that this garden is, is, is likely centuries, if not thousands of years old. Some of these terrace gardens I've been told uh, are almost 3000 years old, like Almost going back in some time, and not the, not necessarily this garden in this picture, but I was told that some of these terrace gardens have been kept up since the days of Abraham um, by whoever lived in the land. You had to keep uh, these gardens up. So you can see the terraces. It's a way of utilizing a, a, a hillside. When you came into the land, everybody got a plot of ground. Uh, everybody got a field. But there were only so many fields to go around. And so another way that you could give somebody a plot of ground that they could grow things on, that they could, uh, in a barter economy, have a, a sense of sustenance from, is you could take a hillside that you couldn't farm and you could turn it into terraces. And then these terraces you could plant trees on, olive trees, 
uh, grape hedges. You can actually see in the second photo in that presentation, uh, you can see both olive trees on every terrace. And then you can also make out these beautiful grape hedges that go up up these terraces as well. Um, you can see everything from like wine presses carved, a watchtower uh, in in the photo. And, and these terraces were an, an incredibly effective way of farming a hillside. And yet they required a ton of just constant maintenance because the only thing holding that hillside together, the terraces together are what Brent, what do you see when you look at those photos? Uh, they're just stones, just stone walls and, and large stone walls, but, or, or, or smaller stones, Brent, uh, the stones, the individual stones are all pretty small, but there's, yeah, they're just small little stones. Right. Uh, second to last photo there shows uh, a few of us that were on the trip kind of rebuilding one of the walls that was there kind of in a reference to uh, a later portion of Isaiah, rebuilder of ancient walls. Um, but uh, there, there's a, there's all these stones that build these walls. Now you as a family, let's say the Billings family, has one of these terraces. Now I understand, practically speaking, I'm not an idiot, that Brent can just jump down from his Billings terrace and he can just go over, uh, you know, to his neighbor's terrace down below him, and he can expect inspect his wall. But as a as a picture, as a concept, do you see your wall if you're up on your terrace, Brent? No, I see my neighbor's wall. You see your neighbor's wall. So who is the one that's seeing your wall? My other neighbor. Yeah, so somebody else is practically speaking on a daily basis, seeing and watching. This becomes a beautiful metaphor in the world of the Middle East for community. Um, this is one of the things that I believe Isaiah is employing here by talking about God's people as a vineyard. This is a great image and a great picture for what God's people look like. Every one of us has a terrace, but we have to rely on each other to look out for the health of, the stability of, the the rightness of our walls, to be able to put our walls back together. I have to, I have to trust my neighbor to come up to me and say, "Hey, you, you got some rocks coming loose down here. You're gonna want to you're gonna want to give some attention to your wall because Brent, if my ter- if the wall of my terrace, all it takes is one good rain, and now my my terrace washes out. And I've been told it only takes one terrace to fall apart to effectively wash out every single terrace underneath it. And so the importance of looking out for each other's walls becomes so so important. And this is not popular in our day." I think it's gotten even less popular, Brent, since we originally recorded this episode. Coming from 2021, um, I don't think it got any better in the last three and a half years. We don't like people watching our walls. We don't like people, hey, buddy, mind your own business. Like you, you don't get to tell me, we love the verse, judge not lest you be judged. And there's a place for that. We'll talk about that later. But um, we don't like, and yet we depend on, we have to look out for each other's walls and we need to be able to receive the help from the right people. I'm not talking about the wrong people, people that shouldn't be talking about your wall. I'm talking about your neighbor, the person who should be talking about your wall. And Brent, you said in the original podcast that you actually had a neighbor that had a – you actually had a real-life example of this, right? Yeah. The uh, the house two doors down from me is up on you know a slight rise compared to the house three doors down. And the – uh, the owners of that second house were not looking after their retaining wall. And so the the owner of the third house was trying to get that remedy and saying, hey, like, there's a problem here and it's affecting me and I need you to do something about it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a big, a big deal in the neighborhood. 
Yeah. Uh, this is something that, this is a, an idea, a concept, a picture, an image that everybody has to buy into or else it costs, in a lot of ways, it costs everybody. And so this is one of the pictures of community, to realize that we have people that are watching our walls. We have to appreciate that. We have to respect that. We have to receive that. We also need to we also need to give that advice. We need to give that critique in ways that are loving and gentle and kind and patient and full of the fruit of the Spirit. But we have to give it and receive it. But, but to be able to do that graciously and in love and wanting the best for everybody around us is a part of how community thrives. And I think that fits. I think it's one of the reasons that Isaiah uses this image here to talk about, for me, Brent, Story number two, story B, the issue of justice. You're supposed to be looking out for each other, and and you're just you're just not. And this is a, a modern edition. We didn't talk about this in the original recording, but I'm just thinking about this idea of community and how we. Uh, where, I don't remember where we talk about the meanings of the different numbers, but at some point we we say you know the different. I mean, definitely we talk about episode zero, the, the numbers that we see are not necessarily quantitative, they're qualitative. And three is a number that usually represents community. And so in, in this case, you have, you know, three people you have, like, I'm here with my terrace and I'm watching one neighbor's wall, but another neighbor is watching my wall. So you have these three people involved in, in every terrace. That's a fantastic observation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The power of community. All right, and uh, and so one of the last pictures you see there in the presentation is actually the other side of the same valley, uh, the valley that we were in when I take the photos of the vineyard, like the same side of the vineyard that I'm on when I take that photo is what I take a photo. I just turned my camera to the left, and I snapped that photo. That's what it looks like when you don't maintain a vineyard. So that that's your that's your picture of literal like communal judgment. Like on the one side, a beautiful, cultivated, terraced gun that's been taken care of and is operational on the other side, a community that's fallen apart, that is dysfunctional, that hasn't taken care of itself. And now it just sits in absolute disrepair. So it looks, it looks like just a pile of rocks. Yeah. You wouldn't even realize that that, that same, that is the ruins of the same kind of terrace gone, which even like, it might be even hard to imagine like, no, no, no there's no gone there. Yeah, there was, there was a terrace gone just like the one you looked at in the other photo. It's just been, not kept up, and now over the course of centuries has just been washed away. So with that, uh, I'm going to start working towards the end of our discussion today by looking at Isaiah chapter 5. Listen, now that you understand the context of the picture of vineyard, listen to Isaiah 5. I will sing the song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside, and now you've got, the, you've got literal pictures you can be looking at to understand this. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. The Hebrew there is sorek. Sorek is like the the best grapevine in the ancient world you could have. Like it's the best of the best. Um, He built a watchtower in it. He cut out a wine press as well. And he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So God built this vineyard. He did everything he possibly could. He gave it the best grapes. He prepared the soil as best as he could. Every single variable God did perfectly. He obviously he expected to get good grapes, but instead he got a bad crop. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Hebrew word there is be'ushim. 
Be'ushim, bad grapes. And, and if you don't keep your vineyard, if you don't have a vine dresser taking care of that vineyard, these grapes will, will droop and drag on the ground. And if the grapes sit on the ground, uh, they don't develop correctly. They kind of have a stunted growth curve and they go bad. And it's called Be'ushim in the Hebrew. Uh, I came looking, I found only Be'ushim. Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. Consider that last picture in the presentation that we saw. Neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. So Isaiah makes it clear. The vineyard is the people of God. He looked for justice. He looked for mishpat, but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, and there's a play on words here in the Hebrew. He looks for righteousness, zedeka, but heard cries of distress, zeeka. So he looked for zedeka, and he heard only zeeka. Um, looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. Looked for righteousness, but hurt. So what was the grapes that he was looking for? Story A or story B, Brent? Uh, story B. <laughs> Absolutely. Like pure justice. Like God's like, and God already said it at the beginning of Isaiah. Like, I'm not interested in your worship. I'm not interested in your sacrifices. I am interested in all those things, I'm sure God would say. But not at the expense of what I truly care about as people. I would love your worship if it were flowing out of a care for people for justice, for righteousness. But but I came looking for, I know you have Sorek, I came looking for good grapes, but I found only Be'ushim. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks. Another sign of, so add house to house and field to field is a sign of greed and wealth. Uh, people that get up to run after drinks in the ancient world, another sign of, of wealth and greed and luxury. They stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. Again, greed, wealth, justice, empire. No respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth, until it descends their, until into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted in his justice is justice, mishpat, and the holy God will be proved holy by his, his zedekah, his righteous acts, and the sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. And we could finish out chapter five. There's going to be six woes, six woes of Isaiah five coming on the hills of the image of the vineyard. And the condemnation here is a people who don't care about others, a people who are building their own empires, building their own puffed up view of themselves, building their own haughtiness, their own arrogance, committing the sin of Sodom over and over and over again. And God says, I'm just not having it. And again, we pointed out, Brent, this message in some respects, they heard it, at least 
it stayed the hand of judgment that was coming. Sennacherib got sent back to Assyria. What It won't last forever. Spoiler alert. Babylon is still coming, but uh, it, it, it worked for a while. Hezekiah led a massive repentance effort, but uh, here we are. We find ourselves in the pre-Assyrian period, and uh, there you go. There's your image, the image of the vineyard. All right. Well, that does it for our re-record of this episode. I think somehow we managed to make both episodes 50 and 51 longer than they were originally. So. <laughs> I didn't learn how to talk any less over the last three and a half years, that's for sure. No, no. Uh, you know, as we talk about in the original episode, we, we did have discussion groups on the Palouse where, you know, Marty was leading the discussion himself and uh, everything looked very different back in 2017. We don't have those local groups anymore. Marty's living in Ohio now, so things are a little different. So we don't have those discussion groups. You can't just join us in person. Um, Not that anyone was traveling to do that, but, you know, we do have lots of discussion groups all over the world now. So go to BayamontDiscipleship.com, go to the groups page, and you can find our map there. there. There's probably a discussion group somewhere near you. And if not, you can start one up. So check that out. And, uh... You can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. That's still a great way to get a hold of us. And, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. Uh, Hopefully the music you're hearing now sounds about right compared to uh, what it was then, and we'll talk to you again soon.